I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Fritz Weininger on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Really wonderful to have you here. It's my pleasure. So these days you make wine from the Vienna region. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, how did your family settle there and what's the history? Well, uh, I'm born into a family that had uh, over a long time and many generations to do with wine, but never in a big size. Uh, my forefathers had uh, smaller wine producing uh, yeah, farms, more or less farms, with, uh, actually we call it mixed farming system, where they had a little bit of agriculture, they had a little bit of apple trees, they had a little bit of cows and a few pigs, and most of their production was for themselves. And uh, a little bit of wine always was left over. So they opened their living room, invited some guests. They bought some wine, drank some wine, had some fun. And my family had some money to buy things they were not able to produce themselves, like shoes or clothes or whatever they needed. People would come to the house. Yeah, people came to the house. It was either inside, like a living room that was cleared and some uh, tables were put in, or it was in the garden. Like in the summertime, uh, even today, it's wonderful to sit at those uh, Heurigers, it's called today, sit outside, uh, it's uh, casual, uh, no tablecloth, and you just sit down, you don't have to order food, you just order a glass of wine, maybe a bottle of water to it, and chat, communicate, and yeah, you drink a glass of wine, maybe you get hungry then, then you order something to eat, a little snack, maybe some cream cheese and black bread and yeah with the food you get thirsty and with the wine you get hungry and this is a nice way to spend an afternoon or even an evening so this is a tradition in vienna where people would welcome others to their home rather than a more formal restaurant yeah this is a a mix this is not just home this is uh like you make uh you make a restaurant out of your home for a part time like for two weeks and after two weeks you've sold enough wine uh, and made enough money to buy the things you want and then you close and then it's your living room again it's not happening today that way anymore but it was 50 100 years ago and that was the way my forefathers made their living 
a lot of times we hear with Austrian wine market that the Austrians drink the wines quite young. Mm, I wonder if that tradition of drinking in the house of the grower shortly after the wine is bottled might have played into that desire or tradition of the greater region to drink wines fairly young. That has for sure something to do with it, uh, because the wine at the Heuriger uh, is called Heuriger, and Heuriger means the wine of the last harvest. There's also a law to that. So uh, as a Heuriger, you can only sell a wine that is from the last harvest until uh, the 31st of December of the following year. So right after the next harvest, it's over with the Heuriger, and that means it always has to be a fairly young wine. Maybe in the older days it was not as young as today because of the lack of filtration and techniques and so on. But today with all the technologies it's much easier to prepare a wine right after fermentation to make it look nice, to make it uh, taste good and uh, you are able to sell it. People in Vienna especially, but actually all over Austria, love young white wines a lot. A lot more than we as the winemakers like to see that because often the wine is drank away uh, before uh, the wine had the chance to develop fully as we would like to have it. So we are not happy with that, but you cannot change everything. This is it's not easy for us. <laughs> and your mother was from a family of, uh, that had Herrick. Yeah, right. My my mom was from the family. They had my grandfather had the Heurika as my great grandfather had it. And she was the only daughter. She was growing up there. Actually my mom is even an engineer of enology, one of the first uh, women at her time in the early nineteen sixties. She graduated a winemaking college. And late, shortly later, she met my father, who comes out of a small winery, a family-driven winery in the north of Vienna, towards the borderline to Czechia. Today it's Czechia, at that time it was Czechoslovakia. Uh, a little cooler region, a region dedicated to Grüner Weltliner, a region dedicated to very fruity, very you know, spicy uh, types of wines exactly that type of wine uh, in the east of Austria, especially in Vienna, we love to drink. What are the growing conditions in Vienna? Vienna is a little warmer than these northern regions. Uh, Vienna is kind of in the middle of the climate zones of Austria. North of Vienna, the influence of the Bohemian plate, a higher elevated region that starts in Austria, but goes all, all over to towards to Prague. In, in Czechia that is uh, very much lower in temperature because it's higher elevated. So there is influence from there. And on the other side, uh, towards the east, southeast, is the Hungarian flatlands. And that brings a lot of warm air up to our region. Occasionally from the south, there is also an additional Mediterranean influence. but. Mainly, it's a, it's a game between the north and this, the cold north stream and this eastern warm air stream, and Vienna is right in between. So I always like to say Vienna is uh, actually cool enough for fruity white wines, but still warm enough uh, for uh, dark and, and good structured uh, red wines. 
and the fact that uh, the Danube crosses Vienna and actually the Danube crosses exactly the two major wine growing regions in Vienna, the Bisenberg in on the left hand side of the Danube and the Nussberg on the right hand side of the Danube. Uh, there's also humid microclimate, especially in the late summer or early fall, where it's not every year, but every second or third year also possible to produce a very interesting botrytis sweet wines. That's a range of production that you cover because you make yeah. dry white wines and you make red wines and you make a little sweet wine, right? Yeah, absolutely. I cover actually everything. It's also a lot of fun to not just concentrate on one specific style of wine. I couldn't imagine uh, only making, I don't know, gemischter Satz or only Grüner Weltliner. It's uh, fun to have also some sweet wines. It's fun to have some Pinot Noir and some Zweigelt. And well, as it is fun to have many different courses for your dinner and with our styles of wines we can accompany even a seven or a ten course dinner from the aperitif up to the dessert you were born in 1966 mm -hmm. and what was it like growing up with your parents well, it was different than today, of course. There was no computer and no this, uh, these modern things. I even was not in the kindergarten. Uh, we, are, we were two brothers. We are two brothers. And uh, we were playing with our parents in the vineyards. They were working in the vineyards. And uh, we were playing uh, cowboy and Indian and uh, having a lot of fun out there with lots of nature. Actually, when I started to go to school with six or 72, um, everything changed a little bit. We moved completely to Vienna before we partly lived in outside of Vienna in the north. And yeah, then we actually grow up at the Heurika because we lived in the middle of the Heurika and in the 70s it still was used that people drink a lot of wine and party, well, maybe not all night long, but half night long. They didn't walk out before they didn't drink two liters of wine and it was two or three in the morning until my parents were able to go to bed and my small brother and me we were sleeping there it was loud there was music the people were dancing on the tables it was wild still wild i still remember that times it's completely changed today it's uh, it's complete it's the, almost the opposite it's so it's also different to to those days did the wines that were being consumed change as well during that period of time? Have tastes shifted since those years? I think so, yes, definitely. Um, it was more about a, a classic style of wine. The climate was cooler those days. Well, I'm, I'm more than 25 now, uh, 25 years now in the business, and I can definitely say there is a climate change. The 1980s, when I started to make wine, that was much cooler. The wines were lighter, uh, the wines had uh, more freshness and more acidity, sometimes that much acidity that it almost um, did hurt a little bit. That is not uh, existing anymore. These days, the 2000s and the 2010 vintages are completely different to that. My father had a conservative style. He made lots of his wines or most of his wines in big barrels from old oak. The oak didn't taste anymore. There was no temperature control. There was no yeast. There was no technology actually he waited the proper time and uh, once 
he thought the wine is stable and is developed enough, then the wine was bottled. When I started in the late 80s, I, well, I was trained a different style and I wanted to do everything the opposite way. Stainless steel and temperature control and, and no spontaneous yeast. We control everything. We control the fermentation, we control the temperature, we control almost everything. And you had gone to school in Austria. Yes. And uh, actually the, the wines were very successful, but... The longer I was into this, the less I was happy. And I moved more and more towards actually what my father did. Today, I'm doing it much more after the principles of my father than uh, I did it in my beginnings. And I'm happy with this. This is also, an I don't know, I, I see it as an evolution process for myself, more for my private person, for my own taste that I had to go through this. Maybe in the beginning it was was also a question of a generation conflict a little bit. I mean, my father and me, we always understood each other very good, but still he's my father and there is always a little bit of conflict and a little bit of um, something you want to show him that you are better. And uh, this changing many things was for me the possibility to show him that I also know about things maybe he did not know. And this is more the modern way. And he made the conservative way. And okay, he accepted and he respected that. But I have to respect that actually he did it the right way already at his time. And I am coming back to that today. And I'm happy that I found this way. Did you ever talk to him about that? About yeah, coming sure, back? sure, yeah. What did he say? I was right the whole time, now pay me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that, but uh, he's uh, he likes to see that, of course, because he sees that his work was not that bad, and uh, he likes this respect, of course. I never was uh, respectless uh, in front of him. I don't think so, at least. But I had my own style, and even today or 10 years ago, whenever we discussed a wine, you know, there is always more than one road that le that leads you to an uh, to a city or to an, an interesting wine and uh, of course i also could have gone a different direction technology wise or from the uh, acid management or fermentation management temperature management whatever but it is at the end of the day not since 10 years it's for longer it is my signature on the wine and people expect something when they buy my wine so i have to go my style and of course it's changing but i cannot always listen to somebody even when it's my father but i cannot listen always to somebody else what i should do i have to go my way i do go my way i'm most of the time happy with what i'm doing i'm not always happy with what i'm doing i'm very critic with my work but i think uh, it's necessary to also make mistakes do you learn out of mistakes and you develop your style and your way and this is what i did over the last 25 years what were some of the markers or indications to you that you wanted to continue to evolve perhaps back closer to your father what were some of the things that were happening that made you think oh, you know maybe all of this control and stainless steel is not what i want the fruit uh, intensity was very in important for me in my beginnings 
but I saw that the fruit uh, disappears and what stays is a thin wine because the technology that leads to fruit is not building up structure in the wine. The second thing is acidity. Uh, high acidity is something that fits more or less to my region, especially 25 years ago when the climate was much cooler than it is today. But it was more uh, for the local consumption because the local people were used to it. The more we, we started to export and to meet other uh, societies, other tastes, the more we found out the acidity is internationally much too extreme. This is not good. And also on the other side, often when it's even for us, it was too intense from the acidity let's say it too sour uh, we we said to some of the consumers let's wait a year or two you will see it will integrate it will get more harmonious uh, just wait one two years and i waited also one two years and what i saw was the fruit was gone the, the acidity was even more intense it didn't get better that made me, of course, to see acidity management different. It's more about an earlier harmony today than it was in the late 1980s or early uh, 1990s. So less reductive work in the cellar and thus a little bit more age in the cellar before release and a little more exposure to oxygen. Yeah, today uh, <clears throat> I try to divide uh, my program of wines into the entry level. Those wines, especially our market, really loves to have young. And uh, the other group of the single vineyards, old wines, uh, and, and those more representative styles that are bottled later that are also then bottled later when I'm sold out with the previous vintage. I don't care because I really want to give those wines the time. But these lighter styles, some of them are on many wine lists. People want it young anyway. So we start to bottle as soon as the previous vintage is sold uh, or as soon as I think I can go with this quality in that stage that I don't have to be uh, have a bad, bad feeling about it to bottle it that early depends on the vintage depends on the variety depends on the style of wine of course at the end of the day also this is my decision if i bottle it or not it's it's not the not to make business um, it's the business comes with the successful products you bottle because if it's good then it sells and then it's business so never bottle it early just to make money this is not the right solution my not my way but I do find those two levels of wine very different from your winery. Mm -hmm. When I taste the, you know, the wines that are bottled earlier, there's a real directness, a clarity of flavors, a refreshing character. Especially, I think of the rosé is very refreshing. And then when I try like the Neusberg Alta Rabin, that's a very different kind of wine, also labeled quite differently with a different style of label. Yeah. Do you find a significantly different market for those? I mean, does one play in one area of consumer and another in another? Or is it about proper age for the Alta Rabin or what works? No, it's, it's a different market also. It's these entry-level wines go uh, much more 
to more regular restaurants and often are sold by the glass. It is really the, the regular Austrian consumer that asks for these wines. The pricing is also reasonable, so people can afford it. It's not so expensive. But the Alto Raven is really not expensive either. I mean, comparatively for how old it is. Yeah, compared to these entry-level wines, it's much more expensive. These regular consumers wouldn't take it, but not just because of the price, also because of the taste. Uh, Nussberg Alte Reben is a, is a very good example because this is really exactly the opposite. It is an extreme wine. It is a wine for uh, sommeliers. It's a wine for top restaurants that know how to match it with the food. It's a wine for wine geeks, freaks, and and wine producers, also enologists. They like this wine because it's so different. It's so unique and it's so strongly dedicated to the, or influenced by the terroir of the, of the Nussberg. And what about that term that you mentioned before, gemischter Satz? What does that mean? The gemischter Satz is a, a wine type that consists from different grape varieties that are planted together in one vineyard. Uh, by the law, it has to be at least three different grape varieties. But uh, when we look at our old vineyards, it's usually way more. It's six to 10, 12. Sometimes I saw vineyards with 15, 16 different grape varieties. They are completely interplanted, mixed over the field, and they are harvested at the same time. So there is not everything mature at the same time. But this is the this is the magic thing to a gemischter Satz. There is a little bit of overripeness due to some earlier ripening varieties like Pinot Blanc or Dramina, for example. There is some underripeness due to some later ripening varieties like Riesling or Welsh Riesling or Zierfandler. Of course, there are also varieties that are right in between or maybe perfect from the ripeness. But this overripeness and underripeness that together that gives a distinct style of wine the overripeness gives more these exotic flavors a little bit towards maracuya and lychee and the underripeness gives flavors from now your spiciness freshness acidity comes up stronger brings the alcohol back down to a regular limit and this everything together harvested at the same time at the same day co-processed, pressed with one press. So all fermented together. Co-fermented everything together. That gives a distinct style of wine where, in my opinion, the varietal character of each of the varieties steps one step back and the terroir, uh, which is not just the soil, it's also the microclimate and and even more than, than these things, that steps into the front. As a translator of that, do you approach that differently than the single varietal wines that you also make? Just Is it a different mindset to say, okay, we're going to do a co-ferment with a bunch of different grape varieties, some of which I may not know what they are, versus I know the characteristics of this grape, and so I'm going to do this. Is that a different process for you? Actually, not. No. <laughs> no, no, it's just more difficult to find the perfect date of picking uh, because uh, the overripeness may not be too overripe uh, towards botrytis and the underripeness shouldn't be unripeness. I see. If it's unripe, then it's greenish, then it's green tannins, and this is, uh, even if it's just a little bit, not what I want. I want more 
fresh fruit, I want uh, spiciness, I want acidity from this underripeness, but I don't want greenish elements. This is not my goal. Because they they would probably accentuate each other at that high of an acidity. Like yeah. it would taste really bitter if it had right. some bitterness, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how does a wine like the Neusberg Alteraben, how does it age and how does it change over time, that blend from old vines? That's an interesting wine because it uh, it does very well with aging. It even needs a lot more aging than most of my other wines. It's also one of the wines I bottle very late. Uh, it's always bottled uh, either in front of the next vintage or even after the next vintage because I see that uh, the aromas in the winter and the spring after harvest are not the aromas I'm looking for. The aromas I'm looking for, they usually develop over the summertime, um, right before the next harvest. And that gets even more intense the later we bottle it. Some year you can bottle earlier, some year I bottle later. It depends a little bit on the vintage, on the acidity, on the maturity. And then once it's bottled, I again see that the wine does not show everything immediately. It needs half a year, no, actually a year, a minimum after bottling uh, to start slowly to open up really good. It starts to be three years after bottling, four years after bottling. This is the the time I would recommend for this wine. And three, four years is just the beginning. It's not the end. The end is, I don't know, I actually don't know where the end is. This is also a question of the uh, aging conditions. If you have a proper wine cellar with good temperature, so low temperature, then it's probably decades. I'm not sure how long it really can age because the oldest I made is from 1999 and that is still a great bottle of wine. But I have a very good seller for that. It might also be that somewhere in Singapore uh, the wine is not that great anymore because it's aged under too warm conditions. So you decided to do that in 99. What led you to that decision to make that wine? Um, actually, I I didn't want to make gemischter Satz. I wanted to have a piece of this famous Nussberg. I'm not from the Nussberg. I'm originally from the other side of the Danube, which was historically always a poor region. And the rich uh, winemakers, they lived around the Nussberg. Over centuries, these wines were very expensive and uh, well known over now, let's say half Europe, they, due to the Danube, which was a, a transport uh, possibility, it was exported in many countries and uh, they, they made a lot of money with their wine from the Nussberg. And I thought what was good 100 years ago or 200 years ago cannot be bad today, not in the wine business, I mean not in the wine growing business. So I want to explore this mystic thing or this this glory of the Nussberg and I want to have a piece of land there to try it out. And uh, suddenly in 99 I heard about a vineyard and I was able to, to get it, to take it over. It's owned, still owned by a monastery. I uh, discussed with them and immediately they said, yes, you are the right one, you get it. But the problem was, in my eyes, in the first moment, it was a gemischter Satz. I did not believe in that in 1999. So 
it looked very good. It looked very healthy and no reason to interplant anything. This was a perfect, wonderful vineyard and already more than 40 years old at that time. So I said, uh, let's try it at least once and maybe we do some research. We harvest out of this field plant vineyard a few vines separated and do some varietal portions in a small quantity just to see how the wine tastes and the big rest goes into a big tank and we make this gemischte Satz and let's see how it tastes. Then after we know how it tastes we, we will decide what we do with it. Okay, we did so. We harvested a little bit of Grüner Weltliner separated. We harvest some Welsh Riesling uh, separated and some Pinot Blanc separated. Only a couple hundred kilograms out of four hectares. This is a big vineyard. And the big uh, rest we put in one tank and that was the gemischter Satz. So after fermentation, I tasted that. The Welsh Riesling was nice. Not great, but nice. The Grüner Weltliner was wow, was really good. Very creamy, different style to what I knew from my area on the other side of the Danube. The Pinot Blanc was even greater. A fantastic Pinot Blanc reminded me more to Alsatian Pinot Blancs. Very classy and really great. I liked it very much. And then I went to this tank with the rest, the Gemischter Satz, not really believing that there could come out something interesting. And I went to this wolf and filled my glass and smelled into this wine and tasted it and I this was wow. I was amazed. In this moment, I remembered that some of my old colleagues always wanted to convince me on Gemischter Satz because they said, this is our identity, this is our history, you have to respect this and this is so great. I didn't believe it. With this first impression of that vineyard, I realized that they were right. For me, it was like, like Merceau without oak extremely terroir driven uh, this chalkiness on the on the pellets also the, the, the intense fruit in the nose a fantastic wine in this moment i knew gemischter satz can be a great wine and i have a, a raw diamond in my hand and now well what will we do with it uh, nobody awaits for a gemischter satz it had at that time a very bad reputation and i was afraid nobody would understand it this type of wine but on the other side i thought a good wine always finds uh, the consumers i just have to bottle it and to show the wine to the people and yeah so i did and it was successful maybe not perfectly successful from the first day but this style this was uh, this was for sure the wine that pushed away that avalanche that we call today the renaissance of the Wiener Gemischter Satz. And uh, in the meantime, it's not just mine. This is a, a more than two, three hands full, even more great Wiener Gemischter Satz wines from the Vienna region, from at least yeah, more than half a dozen of wine growers. It is in the meantime a Presidio product of Slow Food International and starting with the vintage 2013 we even got our own appellation and of course it's the Wiener Gemischter Satz and everybody today is very proud of it and 15 years ago it had a reputation like, I don't know, as a really bad.
so Wiener Gemisterstadt means it's a Vienna wine, Wiener Vienna. And why do you think in Vienna this was something that historically happened? Why did they do this, make this kind of wine? It did not just happen in Vienna, it happened all over Europe. Yeah, before the phylloxera came, there didn't nurseries for plants exist, and the winemakers no matter in what area in Europe, in the east, in the west, in France, in Bulgaria, everywhere, they produced their own grapes, their own vines, and they didn't care about the variety. All everybody cared always about was the uh, appellation, the vineyards, the crews. And uh, then the phylloxera came and it developed more and more towards single varietal uh, vineyards, especially in the mid of the uh, 20th century, it uh, became modern to have a single varietal vineyard uh, because this is more intelligent, everything flowers at the same time. You want to be modern, so you have to plant a, a, a single varietal vineyard. The reason why in Vienna are still so many old vineyards uh, from Gemischter Satz is simply that, that the vineyards didn't uh, get uh, replanted or kicked out as long as they were healthy and yielding good because the wine was not sold as a varietal wine. The wine was not sold as a gemischter Satz either. The wine was just sold as Wiener Heuriger and nobody asked what variety is this. In other wine regions, not only in Austria, people started to ask what variety is this. The New World showed us how important this is. The New World always went in in direction of varieties and not the terroir. And uh, that was the reason why, or is the reason why there are still so many vineyards in Vienna. Because everything that was yielding well and was tasting good uh, stayed. Because the fact that it was gemischter Satz was not interesting for, for anybody. Do you make the Neusberg Alteraben every year? Is that one you make every single year? Yes, yes, I produce it every year, but it's it's quite different between the warmer years and the cooler years, 11 and 12. The last vintages were pretty warm, so it's a very powerful wine that needs a long time. It's more wines that taste a little bit like, uh, you know, I don't know, white Bordeaux. Or yeah, that's what I think. Sometimes it's got a little oiliness yeah, to it right. that I almost don't associate with Austria. Yeah. Like, you know, Austrian wines that I know. Yeah. The texture is different for me. Um, in the cooler years, it's it's clearer uh, to define as an Austrian wine because the fruit intensity is, is much stronger and there is also the acidity. You can feel uh, more intense. But the hotter years, uh, especially this summers, if they are hot, then the acidity goes down. The maturity goes up to a very high level. Uh, we cannot harvest too early either because then we get more bitterness. We get more greenish unripeness uh, so we have to harvest a little later we end up having a a warmer wine uh, a wine that is more or richer in alcohol i cannot change that so it's always will be a a, a very good uh, picture of the vintage this style of wine what are other standout vintages for you since 99 which which others of that wine have you thought wow interesting i liked very much the 2002 and extremely the 2004 which was a cooler vintage and also the 2008 
was also cooler vintage. But there are also warm vintage like uh, 06 and 09 I liked extremely much. The youngest vintages I never liked. So I'm not talking about 11, 12 now that much because they are too young. To be honest it's it's another year another two years maybe you have to give them to develop in the right way and then i think the wine will show the way we expect it say you pull a bottle out of your cellar of the, the noisburg alto raven and you want to have it with dinner mm-hmm. how do you handle it and what would you eat with it did you decant it or would you drink it straight from the bottle would you open it in advance or would you open it and pour it right away to be drunk and then what what do you usually pair it with also decanted is a question of the of the vintage the older and cooler i would not decant maybe also not open before maybe uh, not serve too cold little more moderate temperature maybe even above 10 degrees celsius uh, would be nice the younger vintages like 11 or 12 i would decant actually if i know i drink the bottle i would decant it what i eat to that hmm. it's never a light wine so for me it's a very good uh, company to classic viennese cuisine i like to see it for example with zwiebelrostbraten uh, i don't know how to translate that it's a, a beef uh, well done uh, with this uh, onion sauce and baked onion on top of it so the sauce is a little sweetish red wine uh, the tannins wouldn't match well potatoes uh, to it like french fried or this in oil made and that would fit well with this wine anything that needs a more powerful uh, white wine that goes not an elegant uh, fish dish things like that not a light summer chicken salad this is not uh, the the dish for this wine you can go towards fish when you think about spiciness when you think also hungarian influence like a hungarian the zander fogosh it's in hungarian called i don't know the english word uh, with lots of paprika more intense spices that would work or Asian uh, spices to either fish or meat that also goes pretty well with that wine. And what about the reds? What sort of reds do you make and what's it like to make them? When I graduated winemaking college, I, I had the big dream that when I start immediately to work at home, I never see anything of the world. And over centuries, it was always used for the young to go out and learn a little bit and then come back and do their profession. And I thought I also want to do that. And I went half a year to California, to Napa Valley, and I worked there in a winery. And maybe I didn't learn a lot by the technique, because the technique in the college I learned the same, and uh, there was not nothing in addition to that. But the philosophy how to make wine, uh, the goal, what is a good wine, what is what is a great wine, these things I learned a lot uh, additionally to what I knew already. Austria at that time was 
on its own. This was a closed market and everybody was proud of its Gröner Weltliner and everybody was proud of its uh, Zweigelt, our main red wine variety, but no French oak, no malolactic fermentation, no, no any other influences were allowed because this was a different taste, we don't want that. No matter if it's good or not. And I came to California and saw that uh, also other influences can make a very good wine, even maybe a better one. In case of red wine, immediately I realized that uh, red wine without any oak uh, yeah, is not as good as with some oak. Of course, I also had plenty of uh, over-oaked wines, which I also didn't like and still don't like. But uh, to go more uh, open to this, I actually learned when I was there. And I came back and I knew uh, I just, I, I don't want only uh, to produce what my father did. On the one side, of course, I want to change a little bit because I want to show him that I also can make good quality and in terms of red wine when i came back from california i knew very strong inside me that i want to have red wine in our list even in fact that it is not that easy because it's a cooler climate and uh, red wine was not so strong at that time but i want it so I did it. And we planted some uh, Merlot, we planted some Cabernet Sauvignon, we planted uh, a lot of Zweigelt, and we, I made my research, I imported uh, French oak barrels and uh, put small parts in these barrels and made my experiments. And so I built up some red wines. The one I'm not talking about so far, but which is actually the most important for me, not just today, that is Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir already my grandfather had planted and I liked the taste of that very much even in fact that there was no uh, there was big barrels old Austrian oak so there was no influence of oak but Pinot Noir doesn't need that much of influence of oak so in the warmer vintages I liked it very much in the cooler no, yeah, it was usually sold as a table wine at the Heuriger so I didn't think about that too much but what was interesting for me after uh, I started at home with the winemaking, always in the winter time, I traveled like a couple of weeks to South Africa or a little bit to Australia or here and there, California, of course, back and forwards. And when once it once we had some wine tastings with the winemakers, uh, we tasted the program, we talked about Riesling, we talked about Chardonnay. At the end of the tasting with the winemakers, it always was about Pinot Noir. This was where the eyes of any winemaker got wet. This was the most emotional issue for any winemaker I, I got to know. And I realized that we in Vienna, or maybe in Austria, but especially in Vienna, have actually very good conditions for that. We maybe are not the big Burgundy market uh, in, in Austria, but a Pinot Noir that tastes in that direction has wonderful conditions because we have a cooler climate, we have a lot of chalk in our soil, and we have a lot of wind due to the Danube River that keeps the Pinot Noir healthy, which is not that easy uh, under not so warm conditions. So actually the perfect conditions. And so I concentrated more and more on Pinot Noir. And what have the results been over the years? In the beginning, it was a little more hmm, 
Austrian-German style, a little over fruity. The oak was maybe not as good as this was later on. And structure-wise, I was not able uh, to, to build up the structure in the way I wanted it. I knew the taste I wanted to create, but I didn't know how to get there. And later, when I started with uh, cold maceration and uh, started to ferment also the stems or parts of the stems with the must, I gained suddenly that structure, what I was missing. And also the vineyard I took in another region at the Nussberg uh, that also uh, was very positive for the development of my Pinot Noirs. Today the Pinot Noirs are my top red wines and also from the quantity it's not that little anymore. In total the red wine in my uh, winery is about one third of the production. So everybody talks about white wine region Vienna and historically this is really correct but uh, nowadays it's not that little red wine anymore. Maybe it's not growing anymore because it's somewhere uh, on a roof and the Viennese are still white wine drinkers but uh, 35% is not so little and well it's not so bad I think and with the uh, Pinot Noir I think this is the right issue on the red side for the future I think it's not Cabernet Sauvignon and that the other wine I'm doing is the Wiener Trilogy Vienna Trilogy where I try to produce a typical red wine out of the region out of a region where red wine never was typical so Zweigelt is the base which gives the spiciness and the cherry type flavors and Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon but not that much anymore from the quantity give it the structure and a little bit more the volume so this is also very successful but this is not a big wine this is a a great wine to drink, a great wine to pair with food, and a typical wine for our region. This is absolutely the case. The, if, you, if we talk about high quality, then it is about Pinot Noir. What about the Newsberg Vineyard again? Because you're making white from there and you're making red from there. What are the characteristics that you see in those two interpretations of that place? I can explain that uh, pretty good with uh, with the Pinot Noir vineyard. When I took over that vineyard, I was actually completely unhappy because it tasted very powerful and fat, like a New World Pinot Noir. I thought, oh God, what do I have here now? This is not what I want. But then I found out that it would be possible to blend it with my other vineyards that have this intense fruit. And I give a little bit more volume to that fruity batches. And I created a much better Pinot Noir after that. So this was this is the major difference to, between these two vineyard sites. All the, the wines at the Nussberg, because the uh, content of clay is higher, I think that's the that's the number one influence, are uh, a little lower in acidity, are a little creamier and a little darker in the aromas. And in the north of the city, the soil is less, very sandy, light soil. The aromas are much lighter. Acidity is higher and there is much more freshness to the fruit. Nussberg is never this freshness. Nussberg is more about the secondary fruit that develops in the tank, in the barrel, over the time, maybe also in the bottle, not so much in, in the vineyard. 
How about the dessert wines or the sweet wines that you make? I always made sweet wines. My father always made sweet wines, not not on purpose. This was uh, always in years where it happened. Then you have to, or we are used to select the healthy fruit away and do our dry wines. And then you have parts that are botrytis. We left that always on the vines and came maybe a week or maybe two weeks later in the same vineyard. And then we harvested uh, this botrytis dried grapes. Uh, we did that in the near the winery at the Biesenberg, mainly with Pinot Blanc, Chardonnay, Welsh Riesling. As well, we do it with gemischter Satz uh, on the other side at the Nussberg, which is also working out extremely good. There's gemischter Satz where there is a wine of Neuburger that is very strong, affected by botrytis. And the next wines maybe are Grüner Veltliner. There is nothing. So you'd leave just those grapes where uh, one third of the grape is already botrytis. You leave on the vine and don't pick it. And a week later, we come back and then probably the whole grape is botrytis because it's growing quick. If it's warm enough in early uh, October, and uh, we can make protritis wines. Acidity is usually high because it's acid-rich varieties. Pinot Blanc has high acidity. Uh, Neuburger not so, but Welsh Riesling has high acidity. Chardonnay has high acidity. This is all variety that have higher acidity. The acidity content paired with the high sugar content gives a very intense fruit play uh, from the nose to the palate. Wonderful wines. Uh, it's great to have that, but it does not grow every year and since I converted to biodynamic work it's almost impossible because all the work is against the botrytis. You spoke about in a way circling back to some of the methods of your father but at the same time you've expanded the production into many different areas that are quite interesting on their own. You're approaching 50. Hmm. What about the next generation? What do you see happening later? <sighs> Well, I just finished the building of a new facility, which was my dream to have that one day. And we made it and I'm still not 50 and I already made it. I'm very proud on that. I just hope that I also can refinance that uh, in time. But I think I can do that because we, we figured out very good and, and exact how to do everything. The biggest wish uh, that is still in front of me is uh, that this goes into the next generation. I have three kids. They are small right now. Uh, the boy is the youngest. He is nine or he's turning nine in May and two girls with 10 and 12. And uh, really, to be honest, the biggest wish I have is that this goes into the next generation. And I don't care if it's a girl, if it's a boy, if it's all of them or just one of them. I just don't want to see this uh, getting closed one day. I don't want to see having fights about any money that could be somewhere, I don't know where. I've seen too many wineries uh, closing down uh, because the next generations don't want to work that much or don't see a sense in, in this job or different other uh, things. Also when you know, the young get married and there is suddenly a, a son-in-law that doesn't 
agree with uh, some decisions. I don't know. I just really hope that we can make it, that uh, we convince our children to consider, to think about taking this over. Uh, we will not force them, but uh, I really strongly hope that it happens. We try to live with them this life. I mean, we take them uh, with us to the restaurants, we take them with us to nice resorts where we do winemaking dinners. Uh, they help a lot uh, during tastings, pouring wine, uh, bringing away the glasses. I give them little tips that they are happy. They help me during the harvest, bring me some food and washing containers and washing buckets and stuff like that. Um, I try to have them a little bit live with me, with us, this life hoping that they like it that much that they don't think of making anything else because it's the most beautiful job in the world and what does your brother do my brother took over the restaurants the heuriger he learned the restaurant business and and he's also a chef and in his wild early days he ran some nightclubs and then he started to think about the family and then he came down uh, to the family business and took over the Heuriger. And he's now running the Heuriger, which is uh, still very successful. It's uh, five minutes from the winery away, also in Stammersdorf in the north of Vienna. It's very authentic uh, and it's uh, very high in quality. It's inexpensive, it's very original, like Liptauer and, and Schweinsbraten and, and chicken and salads and cream cheeses for putting on the bread and stuff like that. But everything is from very high quality standards and therefore he's also very, very successful. And he's selling my wine, so this is a wonderful combination because when at nighttime my winery is closed, people can go to the Heuriger, taste the same wine, taste them for the same price, buy them for the same price. Dance on, on the, the tables. You know. Dance on the tables. <laughs> till <laughs> yeah. till 2 a.m. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great combination and it's, it's, it's also a lot of fun. Or the, it's, it's great to see that family, a family thing works. It's not about making money all the time. It's about helping each other. It's about success. And uh, one day I help my brother and the other day my brother helps me. This is no discussion. And this is a great feeling. This is some of the important things of life, I think, that it is not always just about money. Fritz Weininger, he has made it and he hopes to make it in the future with the Weininger family in Vienna. Thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Fritz Feininger of the Feininger Winery. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. 
You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.